God, be with us here. Let the word that we have today be the word you need. And may the words of my mouth and the dedication of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Today's Old Testament scripture passage from the lectionary is one of the most famously challenging in all of the Bible. One of the strengths of the lectionary is that it does not let us look away or skip over those passages that confront us with difficult messages. And we are always enriched by a community when we do. And so we come to the episode of God's final test to Abraham, whom God has chosen to be the father of the nations. It is a harrowing, bewildering, and heart-rending story, and it does not let us escape with easy answers. It is also a masterpiece of Hebrew narrative, as compelling as much for what it says as for what it does not. In fact, it is, not what, it is what is not said that gives the, orde the ordeal its poignancy and power. So listen now for God's word to us today from the 22nd chapter of Genesis. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, father, and he said, here I am my son. He said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the top of the altar on the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the police to the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Scripture sometimes grabs us by the throat and says, are you really here? Can you do this? The sacrifice of Isaac is one of those stories. 
Let me first briefly remind us how we got to this place in our history with God, and then I will take us through the passage a little more closely and see what is happening, and then finally we can try to understand what it is God is doing and how we might think about it. I cannot promise easy answers. I have always pictured the story of Abraham as God's attempt to find just one person to come into the relationship that God so desperately wants with us. Having failed with Adam and Eve in the garden and then wiping the slate clean and putting Noah and the animals in the ark, which all goes awry at the Tower of Babel, humans seem to keep getting it wrong. And God in the garden is so eager to be with Adam and Eve, he says in one of my favorite lines of scripture, where are you when God is out for his evening stroll? The sweetness of his wondering where they are strikes me as this real desire from the very first to be with us in a place of beauty and peace and tenderness. God wants our community and our flourishing. We quickly find out in the garden that the one thing, the one thing he asks them not to do, they do. And so God keeps trying. And when all humanity has seemed to turn away from God, he gives it another shot. God will not and does not give up on us. So I imagine the God of the universe and the cosmos telescoping down past planets and stars to the earth and down, down, finally, to this one older couple living out a nomadic life on a patch of land in a far-off corner of the world, somewhere below what is now Turkey and above the Sinai Peninsula. And he comes to Abraham, who he believes to be righteous enough that he could be the one who will be the seed of the nations so that God can finally, finally be with us. It is all God wants. And God is not wrong this time. Abraham is a good choice. He is not perfect, as we come to know, but he is probably as close to truly faithful as one of these humans God is insisting on loving and desiring. Abraham just might do it. Most of us would blow it before we got past breakfast. So God asks Abraham and Sarah to leave his people and his home and go to the land that God will tell him about when he gets there. And Abraham does, immediately. He does not hesitate. He trusts in this God, Yahweh, and he goes. A fair amount happens, and Abraham remains faithful, he does a couple of shady things with his wife Sarah, passing her off as his sister to a pharaoh and to Abimelech so that he doesn't get killed. And then he fathers a son at the suggestion of his wife Sarah with her slave girl Hagar. It seems that he is not totally certain that at a hundred years of age, God's promise that he and Sarah will be the parents to a child who will, be who will be a father to more people than the stars is really possible. He's not beyond hedging. But then he and Sarah do have a child. At 90 and 100 years of age, it is definitely miraculous. Sarah even laughs at the notion, and in a comically intimate moment, God catches her laughing and she denies it. But God says, oh yes, you did laugh. But Isaac is born and he will be the inheritor and the seed of the promise. This couple have longed for their whole life for a child. And not to have had one would have been a source of immense shame. And God has given them Isaac to be the father of multitudes. One can only imagine the love they pour into him. Not only are they parents, having desired a child for so long, but he is a child of God's promise, and they are of grandparent age. So they have a parental love, but also a grandparent kind of love, 
which has always struck me as the kind of love we have that is closest to what God's love must be like. Some of you may know what it is to feel that love for a grandchild. Many of us have received it from our own grandparents. I think it must be the distance of life with which a grandparent gazes upon their grandchild, knowing beyond a doubt that life will have its way with them, and so they love so utterly so that they may get through anything because they know the anythings will come. But Sarah wants Ishmael out, the child Abraham had with Hagar. Hagar has been a little haughty with Sarah, and Ishmael may not have been so nice to his new brother. So Abraham, caught in the cross-current of love and wills, painfully sends them away. Ishmael lives, and God promises Hagar that Ishmael will be the father to multitudes as well. But the whole episode is messy. And then it says, after these things, God decides to test Abraham. One of the fascinating literary moves in this passage is that we are told at the start that this is a test, but Abraham doesn't know that. So we get to experience the passage from two vantage points, as an observer of the whole episode, but also through the agonized eyes of Abraham. God asks, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Go to a faraway place, I will tell you, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. This is an utterly confounding request. This is the child of the promise whom God has given to a 90 and 100-year-old. Why would he want Abraham to sacrifice him? We don't know what Abraham thinks, but he must have understood the irony and insanity of the command. As Gerhard von Rad, the foremost scholar of Genesis in the last century, reminds us, Isaac is the child of the promise. In him, every saving thing that God has promised to do is invested and guaranteed. So why? We only know that Abraham rises the next morning to do what he is asked. He does not question, bargain, cry, lament. He only does. He only trusts. I keep thinking of the conversation he must have had to have with Sarah. Um, darling, uh, so uh, God has commanded me to sacrifice Isaac, and I am going to leave tomorrow to do it. He says this to a woman who has waited decades for this beloved child. We are left to wonder how fraught that conversation must have been. Abraham would have had to admit to Sarah that he loved God more than the life of Isaac, that he trusted in God's purposes and would do as he was asked, even if it was beyond agony or comprehension. So Abraham gets everyone ready for the journey, even chopping the wood with which he will sacrifice his son. One can imagine his mental state, the shock, the terror, the anguish. And then they set off to the place that is agonizingly more than three days' journey. When they get close, Abraham tells his young men, stay here, we will go to the mountain, worship, and then we will come back to you. In a passage that is so carefully spare with its language, one must wonder why Abraham says that we will come back to you. Does he still trust that God will stop? Is he offering a small lie so that, he won't, so that he, they won't stop him? So that he can do what God has asked and let nothing get in his way? And then unbearably, Abraham gives the wood to Isaac to carry for the sacrifice, 
and he carries the knife and the fire, and they walk. We do not know what passes between them. Does Isaac, who probably adores his doting father, blindly trust that Abraham would never have anything but the very best of intentions? Out of the silence, Isaac finally speaks, Father, here I am, my son, Abraham responds with loving care. Isaac says, we have all the things we need to worship, but what about the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac is possibly naively asking, but might also be sensing Abraham's agitation and beginning to wonder what is actually happening. Children are very good at sensing their parents' anxiety, despite our attempts to hide it. Some ancient Jewish midrash have noted that in Isaac's naive and loving trust, he is unblemished, which would have made him a perfect sacrifice. Proper sacrifices were required to be unblemished, pure. Abraham responds that God will provide the lamb, and God has. But perhaps Abraham is also praying that there will be some other command to come and that he will be spared the coming horror. This part of the journey ends how it began with the two of them walking on together. I think of some of the most cherished times with my own daughter, and they often have been when we were not talking. Long drives to school or camp or Maine, a walk in the woods where just being with one another was enough. Often when we are young with a parent or as a parent with a child, there is the unsaid dialogue that achingly gets left unsaid the little hurdle in our hearts that keeps us from saying the thing that needs to be said or asking the question we most want to know, the tender peace that we do not want to disturb or the hurt we do not want to awaken. This part of the passage vibrates with this tender poignancy. Abraham's all-encompassing love for his son coupled with a trust in God that has put him in the ultimate tension. And the trust of Isaac or any child that the parent will make it all right. That he may seem agitated or on edge, but he will not stop caring for or providing for or loving me. In this way, the walk they take together is like a walk, a metaphor of our walk with God. We trust that all will be made right. The trust that Isaac has in Abraham is the trust we want to have in God. And just as Abraham is about to kill, his hand is raised with the knife, he is stopped by God, who now knows that Abraham loves and trusts and will obey him. As the theologian and sage Walter Brueggemann writes, God did not know, now God knows. And God knows what he has asked, Abraham, asked of Abraham, because again God says, perhaps with relief, you have not withheld your son, your son, your only son, from me. And Alan Lewis, the Bible scholar, points out something remarkable in this story. It shows us a God who is vulnerable, terribly and terrifyingly so, in the context of a covenant relationship. We are more comfortable with the omni-words, omnipotent, omniscient, to describe God. Yet if we properly understand the dynamics of covenant relationship, then we are confronted with a God who is vulnerable. We can only imagine the relief as Abraham drops the knife, the profound letting go that his terrifying trust paid off. And shaking and through a veil of tears, he goes and gets the ram caught in the thicket and offers it up instead of his son, his only son whom he loves. 
a son who now knows as intimately and painfully as anyone what God might require of us. And so we are left here with this perverse episode of God testing Abraham by asking him to agree to sacrifice his son. James Kugel asked the thing that we all must contend with. Why, in general, should God need to test people? Does not an all-knowing God know in advance who is worthy and who is not? Indeed, who will pass and who will fail? What good was served by putting Abraham through an ordeal whose results were known by God in advance? Abraham finally realizes that God's promise and his command are not ultimately contradictory. Abraham trusts that whatever conflict there might be, is up to God, it is up to God to resolve it, and God is up to it. Which, as we all know, is easier said than done. I often think of my brother who once asked me in relation to my own faith, how could I believe in a God who would allow what happens to Job? He could not get past it the allowing when God seemed to have the power to not allow. And with that same beloved brother, my own soul's mate, I stood in faith while he buried his son earlier this year. I stood with him believing in a loving God who cherishes us beyond our imagining, but also allows such pain and sorrow. It is the mystery of our faith. As it says in Psalm 139, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for the darkness is as a light to you. I think what this episode tells us, or at least I do today, because we are all tested beyond what we think is endurable at some point, is that we must trust in God, and that trust requires everything. That in fact there is no bottom to what it might require. That in the face of death and famine and murder and hate, in the face of injustice and inequality and degradation and starvation and war, in the face of our own personal tragedy and woe and what seems like real evil, we must still trust in a God whose purposes we will not always understand. But we must trust that what God wants is to be with us. And when we are fully with God, when we find, we find peace and flourishing, and see and desire only that which is good and true. And we live into and allow for the fullness of our human emotional life. I think as Americans, we are often conditioned that the only right emotion, the only good emotion, is happiness. But if we see all that we feel and experience as an experience of the fullness with which we are created, and, with God, and which God's people have always felt or experienced, our trust becomes a little easier. Jesus asks no less of us. One man wants to follow Jesus, but only after he buries his father, and Jesus says, no, leave it behind, all of it. Your father, brother, sister, mother, leave with only what is on your back and follow me, he says. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts try to save just a little for themselves after they sell their possessions, and they promptly drop dead. It is easier to ignore the severity, the enormity of this ask. And I don't think it means we can't love and have families and jobs and houses and things we love, like ice cream and air conditioning, a sporty car. But when any or all of them possess us more than our love and worship of God, we will be farther from God than God wants us to be. 
God does not finally need Abraham to go through with it. God only needs to know that he would. But God asks nothing of us that God will not and has not given himself for us, his son, his only son, whom he loves. Amen.